0: Our reading is from the book of Amos, chapter 8, verses 4 through 10, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word of the Lord.
1: Justice is a huge topic in our culture, especially over the past five to six years There's been a groundswell of movements that have sprung up. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, uh, the transgender movement. And these movements are not limited to people of color or to young people. So in 2018, the Washington Post reported that one in five adults had attended at least one march rally or speech since early 2016. And 44% of them were over the age of 50. It's not just young people. Uh, And especially this past year, we've seen more and more white people engaged in issues of racial justice. It's not only people of color either. Justice is a huge topic in our culture, but it's also an incredibly divisive topic. Because like pretty much everything else, it's become incredibly politicized. For instance, James Mumford wrote a book recently uh, in which he talks about political tribes. Uh, Today's political parties have what he calls package deal ethics. Package deal ethics means that all of our most complex moral and ethical issues are bundled together in specific packages, and then your political party tells you uh, how you're supposed to think about all these uh, complex moral and ethical questions. So regardless of your political party, this means that when it comes to issues of justice, and especially racial justice, that, um, that our conversations have become incredibly politicized. So if you're on the left, then everybody on the right is a bigot who denies the existence of white supremacy and systemic racism. Or if you're on the right, then everyone on the left is a woke Marxist social justice warrior. That makes it really difficult to have a real conversation about justice and to talk about real solutions. But if we're willing to look, the Bible offers us unique resources for talking about justice and for taking action. So if you're exploring faith, or maybe you grew up in the church and uh, you left because the church doesn't seem to care about justice— Uh, But if that's you, then I want to invite you to listen to what the prophet Amos says. And if you are a Christian, I want to invite you to listen as well, because Amos isn't just telling us about justice, he's also telling us about Jesus, the God of justice. We're in a series in which we're looking at various Old Testament prophecies that speak about the Messiah, Jesus, about who he is and why he came. Um, in particular this week, we're looking at his work of justice in this world. So um, let's look at this passage and find out three things about the God of justice. We're going to see uh, the nature of justice, the source of justice, and the fulfillment of justice. The nature, the source, and the fulfillment of justice, okay? First, uh, we see the nature of justice here. Um, the time that Amos wrote this book, the nation of Israel was experiencing a season of unprecedented prosperity. Uh, it was a bull market. It, the economy was booming, but there was a problem. Uh, what was that problem? Well, in verse 4, God says, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor. So what were these people doing? Well, we find out in verses 5 and 6, they were boosting the price cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Um, So what this means is, these were people who were rigging the system and driving up prices so that the poor couldn't even afford a pair of sandals, which means they were going into debt and eventually sold into slavery. This is talking about systemic, structural oppression of the poor by the upper classes of society. They were perpetuating a system in which the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Now, here's the thing. That system was not written into their laws, and yet the systemic oppression was still very real. Friends, here's one of the first things I want us to see. The Bible rejects package deal ethics, and so should we. In our culture, uh, if you're on the right, um, people on the right have a tendency to say that poverty is caused by things like poor decision-making and bad family upbringing, while those on the left have a tendency to say that poverty is caused by unjust systems. The Bible says it's both. In other words. The book of Proverbs, for example, acknowledges that you can become poor through bad decision making. But here in Amos and throughout the rest of the Bible, it says over and over again that there are also systemic factors at work. So regardless of your political party, we should reject reductionist explanations because the Bible gives us resources for seeing both individual and systemic factors at work in our deepest social problems because the Bible shows us a God who's passionate about justice. The Hebrew word for that is mishpat. Uh, and even though that word doesn't occur in this passage, uh, the, the whole book of Amos is full of this concept of mishpat justice. Amos is constantly talking about a God who is passionate about mishpat. So for instance, when Martin Luther King J- Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, um, when he said, let justice roll down like waters, he was quoting Amos God is passionate about justice, but what is justice? What, what is its nature? Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer in New York City, wrote a series of essays this past year about racism and justice. They're incredibly thorough and uh, soaked in Scripture. Tim Keller lays out four facets of biblical justice. And the first facet is this, uh, generosity. Uh, you know, capitalism tells you that your money belongs to you. And if you choose to give some of it away, well, that's very charitable of you, but you're not obligated to do that. Socialism says, well, your money belongs to the state, and they will take it from you and do with it as they see fit. But the Bible says your money belongs to God, who commands you to be generous with it, especially to the poor. And if you fail to do that, it's not just being stingy, it's unjust, So, for example, the Bible often contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Now, we listen to those categories, and we tend to think of that in terms of, like, arbitrary moral rules. But Bruce Waltke, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, went through the entire book of Proverbs, and he looked at all the different uses of the words righteous and wicked, and he offers this definition based on his own study. He says, "...the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves..." to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Friends, the point is the first facet of biblical justice is radical sacrificial generosity, especially to the poor. But the second facet of biblical justice is equality. This means that everyone should be treated according to the same standard. You know, in ancient societies, they cared about justice But that meant they had different laws and standards for different social classes. So if you were rich, you had more rights and protections than a poor person. And if you were a poor person, you had to go through a whole rigmarole of procedures in order to get a mere fraction of the justice that a rich person would get. But the Bible levels all class distinctions. It says there's one law, one standard for every human being because God shows no partiality. It means that every human being should be treated the same because every human being is equal. The biblical justice means generosity, but it also means equality. But third, biblical justice means advocacy. So um, even though ideally every human being should be treated equally, the reality is not every human being is treated equally, especially the poor and the needy. So the Bible is constantly talking about lifting up your voice for the poor and the needy. Stand up for them. Take up their cause. Fight for justice for them. So if you think about all the protests we've been seeing in our own country, that's a form of advocacy. Lifting up your voice for those who are oppressed and marginalized. So, um, generosity, equality, advocacy. But the fourth and final facet of biblical justice is responsibility. Now, this may be the one that's probably most controversial for us in our culture, because many white people would say, look, I am not responsible for what slave owners did 250 years ago. So why should I bear the burden for someone else's actions? You know, in our individualistic culture, that makes sense. But the Bible pushes back on the radical individualism of our culture by saying that we all bear a responsibility for what happens in our society. So, um, one of the fastest ways, perhaps, to get into the, the Bible's mindset on this is, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? A guy is walking down the road, and he gets robbed, beaten, and left half dead lying in a ditch on the side of the road. But then along comes a Samaritan who sees him, and he doesn't know the guy. It's certainly not his fault what happened to the guy, but he takes responsibility for him and pours out his resources in order to help the man. Friends, biblical justice means generosity, equality, advocacy, and responsibility And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the nature of justice. But secondly, this passage shows us the source of justice. At the very beginning of this passage, God quotes the people who are oppressing the poor. And in verses five and six, we find out that they say, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Now, here's the question. Where are they when they're saying this? Well, when it talks about the new moon and the Sabbath, that's talking about worship. Basically, these folks, they're in church. They're singing praise to God. They're praying to God. With their bodies, they're on their knees, but in their hearts, they can't wait for it to be over so that they can get out and start making money again. With their bodies, they're worshiping God, but in their hearts, they're worshiping the market. They're worshiping money. They're worshiping the power, status, influence, comfort, and pleasure that come from money. And here's what this means for us. We all are going to worship something. Every single one of us is going to bow down and devote ourselves to something in this world, even if you don't consider yourself a religious person. Because think about these people. They're in church. They're doing traditional religion, but the presence of traditional religion can't show you what they're really worshiping. That means that neither the presence of traditional religion or the absence can really show you what you're worshiping. Friends, here's the point. One of the main things this passage is showing us, it's, it's showing us that the way you live in the world reveals what you worship in your heart. The way you live in the world reveals what you worship in your heart. God is saying that if you really worshiped me, if you really loved me and were devoted to me, then that would reveal itself in this world by a commitment to justice. The way you live in the world reveals what you worship in your heart because the true source of justice in this world is a love relationship with God. That The source of justice is a love relationship with God, but that cuts both ways. And here's what I mean. We've just seen that um, if you're not practicing justice in this world, That's a sign that your heart's not really worshiping God, but something else. But here's the other side of that. You could be practicing justice in this world. You could have a formal, outward commitment to justice, but your heart is still far from God. The absence of justice is a sign of the absence of true worship, but the presence of justice doesn't necessarily guarantee the presence of true worship. Why? Well, I, I don't know if you noticed in verse 7, but it says this, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Now, in the Bible, whenever you were going to make an oath, you always swear by something that's unchanging. So you might say, I swear by the moon, or I swear by the stars, or I swear by the sun. When God says, I have sworn by the pride of Jacob, and Jacob, by the way, is a pet name for Israel, uh, this is God being deeply ironic. God is saying there is nothing more unchanging than the pride and the self-righteousness of the human heart. That means that you could be practicing a formal commitment to justice in this world, but you're not really doing it for God. You're doing it for you. That you could be doing justice in this world, but uh, really your heart is wrapped up in your self image or in your need to feel good about yourself or in your need to feel superior to other people. Friends, Here's what this means. You remember, this passage is showing us that the true source of justice in this world is a love relationship with God, specifically with the God of the Bible. And here's why this is so important. Remember that we were just talking about these four facets of biblical justice generosity, equality, advocacy, responsibility. Those are some of the most powerful moral ideals in our society. Our society revolves around these moral ideals of freedom and equality for all people, regardless of distinction. But um, here's the thing, or rather the question, what is the source of these ideals? You know, we talk about this all the time here at Central West End Church. But the source of these moral ideals is in the Bible, That's where these moral ideals come from. So even though we have secular theories of justice nowadays, like critical race theory, that talk about these moral ideals, the real source of the moral ideals ultimately comes from the Bible. So for instance, Esau Macaulay is a writer and a priest in the Anglican church. He um, uh, wrote a wonderful book, by the way, called Reading While Black that just came out. excuse me, Um, but he had an article this past year in which he was saying that, you know, a lot of people criticize uh, black Christians by saying that, you know, when when black Christians talk about injustice in the world, when they talk about racial injustice, that they're really just, um, that's just Marxism, that's just critical race theory, those are just secular theories of justice. Here's how Esau Macaulay responds to that. Uh, In the article, he says, you know, the prophets, the Psalms, and Jesus all use strong language when talking about the mistreatment of the weak. Much, not all, but much of what is identified critical race theory is actually traditional black church stuff that falls well within the bounds of theological orthodoxy. One example is the idea of institutionalized racism. This is something associated with critical race theory, but black Christians complained about systems like slavery and Jim Crow long before Marxian dialectic theory spread around the world. So does the idea of systems of oppression come from Karl Marx or from black Christians reflecting on their years of experience in those systems? It is paternalistic to assume that black Christians can't come up with these ideas on their own and that we are really parroting the ideas of long-dead German intellectuals. Friends, here's the point. The source of our culture's most deeply cherished moral ideals is the Bible. Esau Macaulay is saying that, listen, when people think that, that secular theories of, of justice and, and oppression... That, that's coming from secular theories. Those secular theories ultimately have their root. Those concepts come from the Bible. So even though we cling to these moral ideals, the true source of those ideals comes from the Bible. So what happens when we cling to the ideals, but we no longer cling to the moral sources those ideals come from? What happens in our society? What do we see? Well, what are we seeing? Pride? Um, self-righteousness? Hatred? division, superiority, flaming indignation, not a desire to unite as humanity, but a desire to condemn and to cast out. So what's the solution to that? Well, that leads to our last point. We've just seen the nature of biblical justice, generosity, equality, advocacy, and responsibility And we've seen the source of justice. It's a love relationship with the God of the Bible. But that leads to our last point, which is the fulfillment of justice. Um, You know, there are really two forms of justice that the Bible talk about. And the first one is this. It's retributive justice. Um, in the Bible, the first form uh, of justice is retributive justice. So, for instance, you know, that means uh, that God is going to punish evil, that God will punish wrongdoers. Uh, You know, and that's exactly what we are seeing a lot of in our society today, isn't it? We have a strong desire to see evil punished, right? Right? This is an impulse that is deeply woven into our universe to see evil punished. Retributive justice. And we actually see examples of retributive justice in this passage. So what does God say that he's going to do to these people who are oppressing the poor? Well, verse 8 says, will not the land tremble for this? That means God's going to send an earthquake of judgment. He goes on to say, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And then he goes on and says, I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make that time like mourning for an only son. God is promising that he is going to punish evil, retributive justice. And the images he uses for that are total devastation, earthquake, darkness, mourning is for the death of an only son, retributive justice. But the Bible also talks even more about restorative justice, restorative justice. And we see examples of that in our passage. Also, this means that not only is God going to rid the world of injustice, retributive justice, he's also going to make a new world of justice, restorative justice. And so we see that, for instance, in chapter 9, verse 11, God says, I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. God is saying that he's going to raise up a descendant of the great King David. That's what he means when he said, restore David's fallen shelter. That he's going to raise up another king, an even greater king, an infinite eternal king who will come and, and rebuild and restore and renew not just the kingdom, but the whole world. And next week, we're going to talk in a lot more detail about what this new world actually looks like. But this week, I want to just give you a couple of glimpses of what it looks like. First, this new world is a place where all the old hostilities and divisions are erased. So God goes on to describe it like this. He says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now, Edom um, was one of Israel's uh, greatest enemies, But God is saying, um, enemies are going to be reconciled because all the nations bear my name. Now, in the Bible, to bear God's name is a way of saying that people have been called into a relationship, a special relationship with God. God is talking about a new world of universal peace. All the nations bear my name, he says. But secondly, um, not only is this a world of universal peace, God also shows it uh, that this is a world of unimaginable prosperity <clears throat> excuse me, and well-being. So he goes on to say, the days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. they will rebuild the ruined cities. Now, here's what the imagery is saying. This is talking about a, a state uh, in the world in which people won't even be done reaping one harvest before they're already planting the next one. It means that that the grapes are going to grow so fast that the person who's planting the seeds in the ground is going to be followed along by the person who's plucking them from the vines because they've already grown up so fast. Can you imagine this? This is a world of reconciled people, of renewed uh, world. It's a renewed cities, systems, and structures. That's what God is promising here. Retributive justice and restorative justice. God is going to rid the world of injustice so that he can make a world of true justice. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it is. But here's the problem. Where does injustice come from in this world? What's the source of injustice? The source of injustice in this world is the pride and self-righteousness of our hearts. The source of injustice in this world is our hearts that are constantly worshiping something other than God. So here's the question. How is God supposed to rid the world of injustice without ridding the world of us? Here's how. You know, the book of Acts describes the earliest days of the church. One of the biggest challenges for the early church was this ethnic hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. So one of their biggest challenges was, how do we create a community of reconciliation and justice? In Acts chapter 15, the whole church gathered together to talk about this question, And the way they resolved it was like this. They quoted Amos chapter 9 and said, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything this passage is talking about. That Jesus is the great Davidic king to come. This eternal, infinite king who's going to come and rebuild and restore the whole world and make it a place of reconciled people and renewed um, uh, world. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. But how does Jesus do it? You know, when Jesus came to earth, he did not come rich, he came poor. He did not come as a social elite, he came marginalized and despised. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come as a mighty ruler, he came as one of the oppressed. Jesus came to earth in order to bear the retributive justice we deserve, And so that we could receive the restorative justice of God. And the ultimate place he did that was on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus fulfills all of the retributive justice that this passage is talking about. You know, Matthew 27 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake, the whole land shook. And not only that, it says there was darkness over the land for three hours. On the cross, Jesus was shaken by the judgment of God. Jesus was plunged into the deepest darkness of cosmic separation and alienation from God. Jesus got the earthquake we deserve. Jesus got the darkness we deserve. And on the cross, you know who was hanging there? When this passage talks about mourning as for the death of an only son, you realize Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the King of creation who came to bear the retributive justice we deserve so that we could receive the restorative justice we desire. Friends, what does all of this mean for us today? As we close this time, let me just offer you a couple of thoughts by way of application. First, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to look deeper than the sound bites. Look deeper than the sound bites that our culture offers us. In other words, we need to resist package deal ethics. That the Bible um, gives us the resources for rejecting our culture's false dichotomy between individual and systemic factors for the social problems in our world. It's not an either-or, it's a both and. Look deeper than the sound bites. But secondly, if you're a Christian. We need to seek to repair not just relationships, but broken systems. You know, racial reconciliation is good, it's important, it's necessary, but unless we are equally, if not more, committed to repairing systems, unjust systems, of racial superiority that perpetuate oppression of people of color in our country— then, all of our efforts at racial reconciliation are not just hollow, they actually end up making the problem worse. We need to look deeper than the sound bites, and we need to seek repair of systems as well as relationships. But, secondly, if you are exploring faith this morning, I, I want to encourage you to look deeper than your moral ideals. In other words, ask yourself this question Does my worldview, does my view of reality, actually give me the sources that I need to cling to the moral ideals that I profess? For instance, can secularism, which says that human beings are cosmic accidents, can that really give me the sources I need for my moral ideal that human beings have inherent worth and dignity? Ask yourself that question, and if the answer is no, (laughs) then you have two options. Either you can abandon your moral ideals, or you can adopt a worldview that actually supports those ideals. Hint, we're looking at it. And lastly, here's the bigger reason you should do this. Not just to seek reparation for our world, but to seek reparation for your relationship with the God who promises to restore the world. Friends, the way you live in the world reveals what you worship in your heart. The more you come into a loving worship relationship with the God who bore the retributive justice that you deserve by giving his life for you, the more you will become a person who's able to practice justice in this world because you will know, you will see that you are not saved by living a good life, but only by the grace of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, God of justice. We praise you that you are a God who has promised and committed himself to removing injustice from this world, to ridding this world of evil and injustice, but you do so to clear the way for restorative justice, for a world made new, for reconciled people, for hearts that are united with one another because they've been reunited with you, Father, that you have promised not just to restore relationships with people, but to renew all of this world. We praise you for that. And we praise you all the more this Christmas season that the way you did that was by sending your son, Jesus, into this world to bear the retributive justice we deserve so that we could receive the restorative justice that we desire. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to go deeper and to seek not just repair for um, our relationships with each other, but for repair of the systems of, of this world, and that we would do that because, first and foremost, we have sought and found and received repair in our relationship with you. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.